everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. So can you introduce yourself, Anne? My name is Anne Wright. I'm a retired U.S. Army colonel and a former U.S. diplomat. I resigned in opposition to the war in Iraq in 2003. I've been living here in Honolulu for the last 21 years, and I'm working hard with a lot of issues that we have here in uh, on Oahu and on Big Island and other places, particularly on the issue of, of the militarization of the Hawaiian Islands and the Pacific. So how are you trying to fight against that militarization? Well, one of the issues that we have that's big time right now is the jet fuel contamination of the water of 93,000 people here on the island of Oahu and trying to hold the Navy accountable for what we all knew was a very dangerous situation of 250 million gallons of jet fuel that were only 100 feet above the aquifer of Honolulu. 20 giant fuel tanks underground built in during World War II that had worn out and were leaking. So 19,000 gallons leaked into the drinking water of all of these people and potentially can go through the aquifer to pollute the water of everyone. So a part of Oahu Water Protectors and Shut Down Red Hill Coalition works to hold the Navy accountable, uh, hold the state accountable, the Department of Health, hold the EPA accountable, because all of these people knew that installation at Red Hill was a danger to the community and that they did nothing to close it down before it caused this pollution. So that's one of the issues. The other one is land back. So much of the island of Oahu, you know, we have six military, major military installations on one tiny little island. Uh, and about uh, 30% of the island is military. A lot of that land should be coming back to the people of Hawaii because we have a housing shortage, we have land shortage. Uh, the, the island itself has big mountains in it, so you can't build all over it. So we need the land back for the people of the islands. Uh, we have the giant Pearl Harbor, which is the major naval installation in the Pacific. Uh, we have over on the Big Island the uh, Puakaloa Military Training Area, which is 130,000 acres that's dedicated to the military and all of its war maneuvers, not only for the U.S. military, but now the militaries of other countries are using it, bombing it, and destroying it. And the cultural artifacts that are there, it's located between two uh, of the volcanoes, the Mauna Kea, the Sacred Mountain uh, of Hawaiians, and Mauna Loa. Uh, so there is a lot of work that we have, the, the environmental pollution, land work, um, uh, you know, and the preservation of the Hawaiian culture uh, that the West, and I'm part of it as one of the colonial settlers here, that we, we owe it to the people of Hawaii to help remove a lot of the things the West has put in here. Are you guys having success at all? Yeah. 
Well, we are raising hell with the Navy, <laughs> although it's they're they're listening after the fact, after they've contaminated the drinking water of so many thousands of people. Uh, but it has brought to the forefront the fact that the military cannot be trusted. The military lies to it. And a lot of people, you know, here in the islands, the military has brought in a lot of money. A lot of people work here. They hold their nose to the environmental degradation that uh, the military has caused, but they've put up with it because, you know, jobs and things like that. But now where they can just see blatantly that the military has been lying, then if they lie on this water thing, they're lying on some other stuff. So I think we are gaining momentum in terms of trying to get land back. Uh, there are 65,000 acres that were leased to the military or 65 years ago. There were 27,000 acres that were leased to the U.S. military for $1. They've had it for 65 years, 27,000 acres for $1. So that lease is coming up in 2027. and 2029. 2029. And we are going to get that land back. But there's plenty of... Uh, a community push on saying you you get away with everything. You're not going to get away with this land anymore for one stinking dollar. You know, so that's that's uh, one of the big programs that we have. And why did the Navy cover up? Why did the military cover up the jet fuel spilling? Why didn't they just address it or try to fix it? Well, it would be common sense that they would be very upfront from the beginning because it was it was mostly their own military families that were getting sick and you would think they would have said early you know we don't know what's happening but don't drink the water um, but they didn't do that they waited over uh, between seven and ten days before families were being notified not to drink the water in fact they had a town meeting where the uh, one of the higher muckety muck admirals said the water's fine to drink I'm drinking it over at my place. Well, that's coming back to bite him, <laughs> that comment, because it wasn't safe. And it's just been a real tragedy for the military itself that uh, its own military families are not trusting it at all. And once you start having that sort of ill ease within the ranks and where the military members themselves have gotten sick and have gotten They've had to leave the island because their commands have been ruthless in saying, you you shut up about talking about that, about talking about what's happening with your family, what's happening to you. Don't tell the press anything about this. This is kind of our own in-house family problem we've got, and we don't need you spreading, you know, the dirt on us. The truth. Yeah. And so once that started getting out, you know, all sorts of people, our military families are saying, we're not shutting up on this. And... So every week we find more and more people that are coming forward with what the symptoms are that they have, the chronic illness now that they have, and, um, and the mistrust that they have for the, the organization that their loved one works with. Have you experienced or observed this kind of dishonesty in the military before? Well, there, there certainly have been plenty of cover-ups that uh, the U.S. military has done. I mean, you think back to the Malai massacre back during the Vietnam War. You look at the recent wars that the U.S. has been involved in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the burn pits, the Agent Orange, the... You know, there's been a lot of, lot of military uh, and defense contractors who have been uh, injured by the types of... Uh, Ordnance that they're around the, you know, the war fighting machine is a very dangerous machine, and it uses toxic, poisonous stuff. And 
military folks as well as the civilians at whom it, a lot of it went, uh, you know, we, we have the history now of all these people that have been uh, severely injured and poisoned. And so, yes, the, we should always be suspicious. And having been in the military 29 years, uh, uh, there, while I, I hope that my 29 years was just not totally in vain, that there were some good things that, that I was a part of, of it, but I think the bottom line is you have to always second guess mm-hmm. everything that the military is doing. And also the State Department? Well, yes, there have been just a few little odds and ends that the State Department has done that uh, you kind of go, well, wonder why you went along with that whole thing of like the Iraq war, or why didn't you push back against uh, the invasion of Afghanistan when there were other ways to go after al-Qaeda? Could have been an international police operation or whatever, but did you have to go along with the military and CIA that were saying, oh, no, we got to have... Uh, boots on the ground for all of that. And the, the history of the, uh, the coups that the U.S. Has, has been a part of, and, you know, some of the more recent ones, 2014 in Ukraine, um, and the, the fiddling around with countries, Cuba, you know, 60 years we've had sanctions on this little tiny island um, because it won't bend to the will of the United States. Same for North Korea. Won't bend to the will of the United States, therefore the most sanctions you could ever have on two little countries. Put sanctions on China and Russia. They're big countries, and they kind of go back like, screw you, you know? Uh, we, can, we can harm you just as much as you can harm us economically. And we're kind of seeing the effects of that in a way. I mean, after COVID and then um, all the sanctions that have been put on both China and Russia, but particularly China, where it's really the manufacturing hub for the United States. And you see an increase in prices and everything coming out of China. Um, so, yeah, the, a lot of um, policies that are backfiring um, for the United States. And you've been to Cuba and North Korea. What should Americans or people around the world know about those two countries? Well, first, Cuba certainly is no threat to the United States. I mean, and during the Obama administration, with the opening of diplomatic relations, the the freedom to travel, uh, cruise ships going down there, huge numbers of American airlines going in, a lot of tourists that were going to Cuba and finding out that, okay, it may not have a democratic government. It may have what still is called a, a, a communist country, but it's not really a communist country in the way you think of it. There's a lot of private enterprise. It's it's more on the Chinese model in a way. Uh, and certainly it's no uh, military threat to the United States. And it's no economic threat. It's no threat to anybody. And it's only 90 miles offshore. And it produces more doctors per capita than any other country in the world. And they go out and help people throughout the world. North Korea, 38 million people live there. They are not dumb people. They put satellites up. They've made nuclear weapons and tested them. They have ballistic missiles. One could say they are a threat, but they've been saying, would you please just sign a stupid peace agreement with us? That's all they want, so that they don't uh, feel that the United States is going to invade and decapitate, which was the name of one of the military exercises, decapitation. They uh, will not back down because they know if they do, then uh, something might happen. 
to their regime. And while I think the regime ought to change its ways of doing things, it has human rights problems, as does the United States. You know, it's got a lot of problems. But it could be a country that would be very quickly able to create an economic place where the people could have much stronger lives if the threat to them was not there and they didn't feel like they had to use a lot of their economy toward building missiles and military stuff. So the women that we talked with um, in North Korea, uh, 250 of them in a conference in, in Pyongyang and 200 of them down in Kaesong, all they were saying, we just would like to have a little peace. If you, if you all wouldn't threaten us, our government wouldn't want to be building all this stuff and our young men and women wouldn't be conscripted into uh, the North Korean military. So while one has to be careful about how you move these things along, after 70 years since the Korean War, um, it's about time that we have a, a, a real peace agreement and the North Koreans could feel that they are not going to be overrun by the U.S. and South Koreans. So why doesn't the United States do that? What's its motives? Money. <laughs> the, the money that is made for the defense of South Korea, the number of weapons manufacturers that are, that are sending tons, uh, paid for by the United States government, sending them into the South Korean military, as well as to the Japanese military, too, because the Japanese are part of this whole little um, push on North Korea. Uh, so, yeah, money is the, the key to it all, that the, the manufacturing uh, of weapons in the United States, the military-industrial complex, uh, in great measure runs the foreign policy of the United States. And until we can break that hold, uh, I'm afraid things are going to continue as they are. However, you know, we keep going after them. We disrupt uh, uh, board meetings of uh, the, the big manufacturers. We're going to have a... Uh, Merchants of Death Tribunal uh, in, in uh, November of next year, uh, where we put on trial, uh, I doubt if they'll show up for it, but the, the CEOs of all the big weapons manufacturers in the United States as an educational opportunity to uh, let our fellow countrymen and women know how much money these people are making out of, out of death. And is this money influencing also the United States' actions or inactions or positions vis-a-vis -vis the proxy war in Ukraine? Yes, I would say that uh, well, the, the United States is depleting its military arsenal, sending it into Ukraine, and much to the great happiness of the weapons manufacturers who are now manufacturing quickly to backfill all the things that have been sent into Ukraine. So every time there's another $4 billion, $40 billion, whatever billion it is, you know, the, the big manufacturers are just thrilled. And in fact, they do their own lobbying behind the scenes saying, yes, the, the administration would, would be, uh, you know, less than honest unless they, they kept after uh, backfilling, or not backfilling, just pushing forward as many of the, the war implements as they can into Ukraine because it, it is the proxy war with Russia. And if we lose there, we're going to lose everywhere. Right. We've heard that story before. <laughs> we, we have to fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here, as oh, yeah. Adam Schiff has said. Yes, yeah. And why do they want to weaken Russia? I mean, Lloyd Austin has said this 
overtly out loud, right, that their priority is to degrade Russia's military capabilities. Why is that so important in this post-Cold War world? Well, in this post-Cold War world, uh, you need to get rid of the post. You've got to have a Cold War. Otherwise, will the American people continue to allow you to use so much of the the budget of the United States on the military? You've got to have an enemy. And so we've they, they've been successfully able to say uh, China is our enemy. So you see a buildup of U.S. military forces and material out here in the Pacific in both Hawaii, Guam, Okinawa, South Korea. Uh, but how about, you know, in, in Europe? Can't we upgrade everything there? Because, well, Russia, oh, they only have a budget one-tenth amount of the United States. And have they invaded any countries? Well, you can add they they have had some wars there in Chechnya and uh, Ossetia, uh, the issue of Crimea and the Donbass, but none of those were a threat to the United States. They were issues uh, of that region. But the United States needs another enemy, so that was a that's a good reason to get Russia right on the radar as enemy number one in the East. And if the United States actually cared about ending the war in Ukraine, what would they be doing? Well, if the U.S. really wanted to end the war, they would take some steps to show the Russians that, that the U.S. is willing to back off on, on a few things. For, they probably won't back off on giving weaponry into Ukraine, but they could back off on uh, the military bases, that, the two new military bases that we've created in uh, Poland and one in Romania, both of them have uh, Aegis um, uh, missile defense systems. Uh, they could say to NATO, let's not have the biggest ground exercises we've ever had uh, the next months or so. They could say, we're not going to send any more NATO uh, forces into the Black Sea. Let's just stop for a little while, see what will happen. Those are things they could do. Um, and one would hope to, because the people of Ukraine are just suffering in such great numbers and the infrastructure, the deaths, the wounding. Russians are suffering, too. And it's and the U.S. is a part of all of that. We're not seeing our own men and women suffering, but we ought to at least have the sympathy for what's going on and the behind-the-scenes stuff that the U.S. is is causing for it. Right. I mean, you see so many people with blue and yellow Ukrainian flags. Mm -hmm. There's a sympathy is there among, I think, civilians, but I don't think they understand how the United States is causing or contributing to the bloodshed there. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with you. There's a there's a great outpouring of sympathy because the, the media is showing what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, unlike Palestine, for example. Yeah. Unlike Palestine. That's right. Is the Israeli latest attack on Gaza ever covered or the kids in the West Bank that are that are mopped up and thrown in jail, little little kids for throwing rocks or maybe throwing rocks, but probably doing nothing. Um, but the media does cover on an almost hourly basis what's going on in Ukraine. So it's a different standard. And I think the complicity of our U.S. media with U.S. government on these things is certainly apparent. And we know it from I mean, you look back 20 years ago with the Iraq war, Afghanistan war, those were covered for the United States government. And 
this uh, latest thing in Ukraine is, is certainly being covered in the way the U.S. government wants it covered. Going back to your time at the State Department when you resigned over Iraq, what made Colin Powell say what he, uh, what made him say what he said? Well, I think Colin Powell turned out to be more loyal to the Bush family than, than he was to the country, even though he had been in the military for three and a half decades. But every senior position he ever had, from being the head of the National Security uh, Chief, uh, then he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs under Bush one, And then when Bush two came in, he was put in as Secretary of State. So he owed the Bush family his three major accomplishments in life. And I think that, and, and according to his chief of staff, Larry Wilkerson, who after 2004, when both of them got out of the State Department, Larry started speaking out. And he's been very uh, frank about the fact that uh, Colin Powell went along because it was the Bush family. And he, and Larry says, we didn't really quite, we didn't believe all the stuff the CIA was giving us about threats of mass destruction and all of this sort of stuff. We didn't believe it. And we threw out most of the stuff that Colin Powell was supposed to tell the UN just didn't even make sense at all. So we eliminated most of it. And, but rather than saying, we're not going along with this and I will resign over it if you attack Iraq, he wasn't willing to do it. Did you face any retaliation for resigning? No, after I resigned, um, um, I wrote what turned out to be the longest letter of resignation in the history of the State Department. It was three and a half pages because I thought, if I'm getting out of here, I'm going to tell them everything I think is going wrong. So not only was the war in Iraq, but it was uh, the unbalanced policies of that administration and every administration on Israel-Palestine, the issue of not following through with the Clinton administration's movements on North Korea. There had been some big headway made and the Bush administration threw it out the window. And then the other thing was the um, unnecessary curtailment of civil liberties under the Patriot Act. And then the big one was the, the Iraq war. So I sent that in and you know, it got it some bit of publicity. It wasn't as big as the first person that did, that uh, uh, Brady Kiesling. Uh, but it got, you know, a certain amount. Uh, I was, um, I really didn't get any pushback from the State Department. I got a, a notice saying, thank you for your service. <laughs> Essentially, that was it. Good luck to you. But I found out later that the very first drafts of this uh, uh, response back to my letter of resignation had gone through various uh, iterations. And the very first one that was pinned by some jerk <laughs> was very rude. Oh. Yeah, like, you don't know what you're doing. You Good riddance to you. And that went up to Colin Powell's office. And uh, apparently it came back going, no, that's not what I want to tell her. And they sent up some little, little milder, went up. And it was, no, that's not what I want to tell her. All I want to say is good luck to you. And that's the way it came out. <laughs> um, last, can I ask you one more question? Sure. Uh, you referred to the coup in Ukraine. You referred to the what's known as the... You refer to what's often called the Maidan Revolution uh, as a coup, which occurred in 2014. And as someone who's been in the military and also in the State Department, why do you see it as a coup? 
Well, if you look at how the U.S. Uh, implements coups, it's normally starting with uh, large amounts of money that go through the National Endowment for Democracy, the Republican National whatever, the Democratic whatever, uh, and that's for citizen activism on whatever subject uh, the U.S. government feels, or primarily the CIA, feels will cause disruption in the country and could perhaps get big enough that there could be a mobilization that might force the government out. And if you look back, that's exactly what happened. And the whole issue of who got hired with the monies that were put in there by the U.S. government, because there were some several billion dollars that went in from the U.S. government on citizen activism, public diplomacy, whatever, plus the fact the U.S. was already sending in special forces people to uh, to help on a military um, movement uh, to help um, militias uh, get weapons, get training, and be there available on Maidan, the Maidan to orchestrate killings. And if you think back, there were snipers that were killing people from, from rooftops. Uh, there over in Odessa, there, were, there was a massacre there that was part of the right-wing Azimov Battalion. That's the U.S. help fund, even though to, publicly they won't say it, but there are special forces people that we know that say, oh, yeah, we helped them. And, in fact, they still are because the Azimov Battalion has now been integrated. The Azov Battalion, yeah, right? Yeah, Azov, pardon me. Azov Battalion has been integrated into parts of the Ukrainian military. So I think this is uh, one of the coups that will go down in history, you know, yet one more of the uh, U.S. warmongering uh, that turned sour. And the Russians had been saying to the U.S. for a long time, don't keep pushing the Ukraine toward membership into NATO. Don't do it. Don't do it. You can read the numerous speeches of Putin over the last 15 years, and they had been saying that. And so the Maidan issue and chaos that came out of that with the president then leaving the country, the more pro-Russian, not real pro-Russian, but he was kind of siding a little bit more with Russian economic policies rather than the Western policies. Uh, but it was no, he, and he only had less than a year left in office, so that he was going to get voted out, apparently. But no, the U.S. stuck its little fingers in there. And then Victoria Newland, you know, our at the time, the secret uh, assistant secretary for European affairs was in the Ukraine and saying, yeah, cookies for the, not coup makers, she didn't quite say that, but then our boy yachts and right. fuck the UN and all this sort fuck of stuff. Fuck the EU, yeah. Yeah. And then, now she's the undersecretary for political affairs, which is really the like the number three, besides the, the secretary of state, deputy secretary of state, and then in the area of most influence, it's the undersecretary for political affairs. So you've got her back in, in that mix. Right. And why does Russia fear uh, Ukrainian membership in NATO? Well, the Ukraine was the largest entity of the former Soviet republics, and it had a nuclear arsenal, although that came out of there. Um, it, had one of the, it has one of the biggest industrial bases. Uh, it has lots of minerals and the, the Soviet Union had put a lot of the manufacturing capability on big, heavy stuff in Ukraine because they, they separated out so that every one of the 15 republics would get some 
something that they were known for. I, I helped open the embassy in Uzbekistan back in 1992, and then I was four, two years in Kyrgyzstan in 94 to 96. And, you know, we, we were educated on, on uh, you know, which, which little now uh, country had gotten what part of the big manufacturing scene and economic scene of the Soviet Union and how they were now suffering because now they're independent countries and oops, we in Kyrgyzstan, we made light bulbs, but we didn't, we didn't make anything big. So now we're having to buy it from them or get it somehow from there. And hopefully they like our light bulbs. And, you know, so the trying to reorganize things, um, and with the, with the Ukraine having such an important part of the old Soviet um, industrial system, um, and it's such a large landmass, and it has such agricultural capability that it really is one of the breadbaskets of the world. So the, the, the Russian Federation didn't want that going into formally into the West. They wanted to keep it as a part of kind of their sphere of influence. And certainly the NATO partnership things that happened after the dissolution of the Soviet Union under the Clinton administration, where they were not supposed to be poaching off all of the Warsaw Pact countries, and they did. In fact, when I was down in Kyrgyzstan, that was one of the deals. Get the Kyrgyz to join up with the NATO partnership, and we did. And... That was after George Bush the first and all said to Gorbachev, no, we're not going to do that. You know, everything's fine. Don't worry. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Anne. Well, right. my pleasure. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Welcome to uh, Hawaii. Aloha. Thank you. And help us spread the word, please. We need to get rid of a lot of this military. Not all of it. <laughs> and can you just tell us where we are right now? Yeah, we are at Pearl Harbor, the back side of Pearl Harbor, the large, large body of water that for the Hawaiians was a naval breadbasket, a maritime breadbasket of all sorts of sea creatures and things. And unfortunately, and you know, 125 years ago, the U.S. military moved in and it has become the huge naval base called Pearl Harbor and the pollution that's gone with it and the need for the fuel for the for ships and aircraft that has come from this Red Hill thing that has now leaked and polluted the drinking water for us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for being here. Aloha. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordoba. See you next time.